0: friends we are a few weeks into our exploration of what it looks like to be a weird christian and the way that i would summarize it i think there's four main things that we've seen so far and there's a lot more to come but you guys want to try to play the read my mind game how would we summarize four things about being a weird christian what was the very first thing that marks strangers and aliens do you remember very, very first thing. A little bit surprising. As aliens and strangers, therefore, I urge you to what? Uh-huh. What was it? Uh-huh. Uh, no, that's coming. That's coming. Abstain. Abstain from sinful desires. So the first thing is like there's this internal longing, this drive. And it's like yeah, the first thing you're going to do if you're a weird Christian is you're going to not just pursue your instinctual desires. Like that's, that's pretty strange. Okay, that's number one. Number two? We talked about this, debated about this, there was great disagreement about this, but I was right about this, and it was, number two, what, what, what is it? What is it? Real loud. Submit to authority. Man, that's hard. I don't want to do that. I'm very sad about being right about that. Um, number three, this was maybe also contentious, but not quite so much. What was the third? We, we abstain from sinful desires. We submit to authority. Yeah, Paul? Da- everyone. Um, yeah, the, uh, the way that I, the, there was a particular, that's true, but there was a particular focus last week that we looked at, and it was a little bit courageous for you as the man to raise your hand to answer this one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, what, what's the third thing? It was last week, is it have you forgotten it? Did it not, did it not stick at all? Wow. Wives, wives submit to your husbands, and then the follow-up to that is, of course, that husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way, right? Sensitive to, never exploiting their vulnerabilities. These are the four things we've seen about what it looks like. And you see this theme into it. It's all submission. It, the whole thing is all about submitting, right? So it's that I'm going to submit to authority within, within a proper relational context. We're going to submit. And as we do that, what we find is that it creates a natural opportunity to abstain from our sinful desires, so what I wanted to know as we kind of started, Lily and I were talking about this after class last week, is I wonder if you guys have ever found yourselves in a situation where you had to submit to authority. Maybe it's to your boss. Maybe it's to the government. And you didn't want to, because who does? But you did. and 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 it turned out that the Lord was leading you through this authority that perhaps you weren't all that excited about. right? And and, and maybe not. I'm not sure. Maybe there's like a thousand conversations where where this this has been learned, actually played out in your life, and you realize, oh my goodness, this is true, and I will remember it again next time. Maybe I might remember it again next time. But any any stories where your your voluntary act of submitting to authority bore fruit that you could see that you wouldn't have seen it. It wouldn't have happened if you had just gone on doing what you wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Has that ever happened? Anyways, uh, well, probably, but maybe anything. But Rita, you want to kick us off? Yeah, just a little short
1: story. When my youngest son he had just turned 16, was driving, um, he was the quiet kind. And unbeknownst to me, he had spent the year before he got his license going to bed every night thinking of situations that could happen when you're driving. And what would I do if this happened? What would I do if this happened? And he had himself convinced that he was prepared for anything that could happen. And so the first time he got the car, I gave him permission to go off the hill to the high school, watch a basketball game, come straight home. He called me after the basketball game was over and said, Mom, I've been in an accident. And I said, don't you kid me. He said, no, I'm serious, I've been in an accident. And I said, where are you? And he said, I don't know. And I said, what do you mean you don't know? You have permission to come up the hill and down the hill. He said, well, I went through a neighborhood. And I said, well, look and find out where you are. And he said, I can't. The car's on top of the sign. (laughs) And so then um, he was really shaky. A high school teacher of his who lived nearby came over, grabbed the phone, and said, please come over here and be with him. Don't be hard. He's a really good kid. Um, but he needs you and it's pretty scary. So I got over there and he had been coming down the hill in a neighborhood probably 50 miles an hour and you know, 25. He hit a speed bump and realized that suddenly things happen so fast. It doesn't matter if you prepare ahead of time. You can't think fast enough. He ended up running over the solid post, knocked it down, and came this far within a tree that was like six or seven feet in circumference. He could not get out of his door, he could even open it. And the police were nice, but they gave him a ticket for reckless driving, and we knew right away, okay, you're going to be without a license until you're at least 18. Um, and he Apologized and then he told me, you know, to forgive him that he thought he could do this and still be in control. And so, of course, all of our friends said, "This was in Chapel Hill. You can't let this happen. You've got to get a lawyer. You're gonna, you got to get a lawyer." And so we talked to him about it. He said, "No, why would I get a lawyer?" And we said, "Just so that you might not lose your license." And he said, "But I'm guilty." I'm guilty of it, and so why should I pay someone to try and get me out of it or say I'm not guilty? And so after much talk, we just respected it and said, okay, Steve, this is probably the consequence. And he said, it's okay, I'm guilty. And so the day that he was doing court, he went down there, the DA was there, said, is there anyone here that you know wants to asked me a question before they see the judge who doesn't have a lawyer. So my son went up to the DA and showed him his ticket and the DA read it and said, you don't have a lawyer? And he said, no. And he said, well, why not? And so Steve said the same thing, You know, well, I'm guilty and I need to not say that I'm not guilty. I need to tell the judge I'm guilty and I'm sorry. And the DA said, well, what lesson have you learned? And he said, I've learned that. Even though I think I'm in control and I've thought through everything that could possibly happen and know what I could do, that I'm really not in control. And things happen really fast. And the DA said, I think you've learned your lesson. And he ripped the ticket up. Steve didn't even get a speeding ticket. Wow. Um, And that was because, well, I just see this as he submitted to the authority and he didn't want to as a Christian, go in front of an authority and lie mm-hmm. or try to
0: get out of it. Yeah. And, and at that time, God just blessed that. Yeah. It really made an impact on Steve. <coughs> yeah, I could imagine. And that story could have gone, even if it had gone the other way, like his, he was right to say, well, like I, I'm, I am, in fact, I did exactly what I've been accused of, right? So uh, what, a, what a gift of grace that God would say, in the midst of that, we're going to not add further penalty to you. And how was his driving subsequent to that? Did he do a better job? Oh, yeah, very careful. Yeah, right? I imagine that whole experience would be pretty pretty startling. Very good. Okay, how about one more? One more quick story of how submitting to authority actually worked out properly. It ended up bringing about the, the end that God might have desired. Got a Quick story? Yeah, Lily? Um, this
2: has happened several times in my marriage. I'll just give a little background. Mom's been the primary breadwinner, kind of anti princess. So I did not want to submit to authority or think, you know, I didn't have any foundation for thinking that a man is given authority as a husband with his wife and in his family. So um, the primary way that I found that God really answers my submission before Tommy is when I decide not to nag him and I let it be. And in this particular situation, the most recent one that happened was, um, you have a lot of opinions about how he should spend his devotional time in the neck Jesus one-on-one, lots of opinions. But um, when I let it go, and then I see God speak to him very directly, and he was like, he came to me and he said something really funny, and I was like, what did God say to you? And he said, God told me to do this, and I was like, I'm telling you to do that for life. Ten years, so, (laughs) but I can't tell you how many times this has happened in my marriage. If I nag him, or if I push on him in ways that are not respectful, because I'm a child, a mother, uh, mothering him, you know, trying to tell him how to do his relationship with God, or whatever that is. If I let it be, and if I trust God in that, then he will speak directly to Tommy, and I don't have to. So that's like the beauty of submitting, and then it's it's not really me. I don't even feel
0: like I'm submitting to Tom. I, I know I'm submitting to God. Yeah, and that's I appreciate that. And that's yeah, it's very rarely. I mean, we, people have learned this over the centuries, and then we unlearn it and redo it again. But it, but there, it is far more effective if God is moving somebody's heart than if we are. Our ability to externally nag somebody into submission is just about zero. All you know, it just doesn't work. So when we, but when we, if but prayer moves things and changes people's lives, moves the hand that moves the world. So. All right. Let's take a look at this. First Peter three. Got your, you got your Bibles. So open it up. We're going to pick kick it up at verse eight, and we'll go ahead and read. Let's do eight to twelve. I don't, I'm pretty sure we won't get past that today. So here's what he says. This is Peter still continuing this this kind of dissertation. What does it look like for Christians to be aliens and strangers? And he says, finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. And then he says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you are called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Okay, now I want to direct your attention back here to verse 8. Um, translators, when they when they bring stuff from you know Greek or Hebrew into English, they will sometimes mess with the grammar of the thing just to make it flow, and make it sound better to our ears. Really what's going on in verse 8 is you have five adjectives. This thing kind of turns some of them into verbs and kind of makes it flow a little better. But really what he's saying is he's like, be, he gives us these, these five things. He says... You need to be harmonious, sympathetic, brother-lovish, which is why we don't keep that the way that sounds, compassionate and humble. We are to be harmonious, sympathetic, brother-lovish, compassionate, and humble. Think about that set of things. If we were, if if, if I were to ask you describe Church of the Holy Spirit. Or describe you. If somebody say if if somebody were to say, Yeah, I feel like D F P is harmonious, sympathetic, brother lovish, compassionate, and humble, then it, okay, then A, he'd be wrong, Dan says. But this is what Peter's saying, this is what our lives are to look like. You wanna be strange? Let these things be the markers of your lives. Okay? Now what do you think? There's a couple of options here. What do you think is the context in which we live these things out? What's the framework in which we are compassionate and humble, brother lovish and sympathetic and harmonious? Where, what do you think Peter is describing there? Do you have a sense? <laughs> do you even know what the options are? John, do you, do you want to answer that? Or are you just coughing? Yeah. coughing. <laughs> just coughing. What do you guys think the context here is? What's the bullseye context? Rita? I
1: think it's within the church because when he puts in one of his brothers, um, and that's part of the list, to me that's saying all these things should be being practiced among the
0: that's exactly what I was looking for. So thank you for that. It was kind of a odd, kind of a too vague of a question. This sort of a list shows up all throughout the New Testament in describing how does the church interact with the church, right? That we are to clothe ourselves with compassion, we're to be humble towards each other. And this, and you're right when he says love each other as brothers. this brother lovish makes most sense in the context of the of the brothers of the community of belief, right? And so it's absolutely the case that Christians ought to treat those inside the church with these sort of ways, that our attitude, we should be seeking harmony. Are we seeking, like, is everything a fight? Are we trying to kind of cause division? Are we trying to get, get, a, get advantage of each other? Are we, are we trying to be sympathetic towards one another? Or are we like, I don't know why he's so stupid about that. That's ridiculous. All within the church, we are supposed to have this as our framework, that my natural inclination and in all these things. We could, we could get out of dictionary, but I don't want to take our time on that. And we could talk about seeking harmony, Right. Sympathy or empathy, right? Is it something that can I can am I able to see the world through your eyes? All of those things are supposed to function within this community. However, what I really want to point you to is that Peter takes it beyond that. Most of the time, the New Testament is going to use this inside. But look at verse nine, okay.
2: Yeah.
0: And when he gets to verse 9, which I, I take what follows here is to really be an expansion of those five adjectives. If we, if we hit these five adjectives, then he starts to operationalize it and flesh it out. And if we look at what he says in verse 9. Because I think this spills outside of the normal boundaries of the church. He says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you are called, so that you may inherit a blessing. Okay? Okay? that first of all where's peter getting that from do you know do you know the source material for this claim that we are not to repay evil with evil or insult with insult that's Matthew 5 Matthew 5 and what is Matthew 5 yeah. okay so 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 go here you guys this is this is an important thing we're going this is probably all we're going to get into today cuz this is such a central claim when peter says don't repay insult with insult don't repay you know we don't when we when we're cursed we bless don't repay evil with evil He's really thinking, I think, absolutely drawing from Matthew 5. So flip back to Matthew 5. I want want you to see this. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' is probably most famous individual moment of teaching. You'll find the same thing essentially in Luke 6. I don't know where it is. Do you know where it is in Mark, Andy? Mark has that Sermon on the Mount, right? Uh, Do you know what, Chat. It's going to be early. Is it 4, 5, 6? I'd say 4. I don't, even, I don't even know, but, but it's definitely Matthew 5 and it's definitely Luke 6, but Matthew 5 is probably the most developed. We usually go to Matthew 5 for the Sermon on the Mount, 5, 6, 7, but this section is in chapter 5. And listen to what Jesus says. He says, you have heard it said, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you, and take your tunic let him have your cloak as well if someone forces you to go 1 mile go with him 2 miles give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you do you see like peter is not making any of this up this radical submission in all contexts this is it's grounded in the sermon on the mount everything he's saying is an explanation of what jesus said or or a Exploration. Verse 43. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Meaning from God. Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Now, listen to this next statement in light of Peter's call to strangeness. Listen, he says, "If you greet only your brothers, i.e., those within the community of belief, within among other believers, if you greet only your beloveds, what are you doing more than others? I.e., what's weird about that? Right? That's what 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 Peter's what Jesus is saying is, if you do that, if you do this base level, like big whoop." There's nothing strange about that. That's not alien. That's not weird. That will get no one's attention, okay? If you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You guys, Peter's not making this up. He's just taking what Jesus has said, and he's, and he's, and he's pressing into it. And in fact, I wonder, have you, have, have you ever noticed how often this singular advice shows up in the New Testament? This statement here, in fact, try kind of run through the Rolodex in your brain. This statement here, verse 9. Do not repay evil with evil, or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you are called so that you may inherit a blessing, okay? It is absolutely sourced, as Andy said, in Matthew 5, but it doesn't just show up in 1 Peter 3, it shows up all over the place. Do you you have other places, can you think of other passages that quote Matthew 5 as well? Kelly? The end of Romans 12. The end of Romans 12, is that what you said? Yeah, absolutely, Romans 12, flip there, This this is worth seeing. I want you to see all of these, well, I'll show you why in a second. Romans 12, verse 14, Probably is the is the center point of that, Kelly. So if you go to Romans twelve fourteen, you might find it says, "Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse." That's Matthew five. That's First Peter three. That's Romans twelve. How else? Do you know, Fetz. Do you know where else? Sixteen.
1: Well, you, you missed sixteen.
0: and 17. Okay, you want me to keep going? Okay, go ahead. Go ahead and read real loud. That's the
1: center point. sixteen. Live in harmony. There's your. harmony. Yep. 17, do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to right. Live in peace
0: with all men. Yeah, that, that, that whole passage, of the second half of Romans 12 This is full of this. I'm just keying in on that single statement that we bless, we do not curse. But you're right. The, you could draw like like a half a dozen lines between Romans 12 and 1 Peter 3. Lots and lots of stuff. For sure, for sure. Fetzer?
1: Uh, I'm going to say First uh, John all over the place in terms of the loving. Uh, John 13.
0: Give us a give us a sum about. I want I want people to hear the the phrasing here and how this shows up over and over and over again. Have you got Have you got one from either one either one of those places? John thirteen is that the Lord uh, the, the will know that you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. Yes, yes. But beyond that is what we're looking for is this that specifically when we are reviled, we do not curse back. That when you punch me in the face, I don't punch back because punching back is the absolutely normal, overwhelming, regular thing to do. So I want I want you to see how often the New Testament says, "Take the hit, don't curse those that curse you." Jennifer.
2: I have First Thessalonians.
0: Yes, yes, very good. Verse fifteen. Okay, go real loud.
2: See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all
0: people. Right. First, so First Thess. Five. 1 Peter. Three. Matt, well, Matthew 5 is the source. Romans 12. Yeah. There's at least one other where it's this exact phrasing. You know, anybody else know where this is? 1 Corinthians 4. Go to that. 1 Corinthians 4.12. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. You guys, it's, it's everywhere. I mean, it's just all over the place. Brad?
1: Going back to the Old Testament, Proverbs twenty-five twenty-one says, "If your enemy is hungry, give him
0: bread to eat; if he's thirsty, give him water to drink." Yes. Okay. Excellent. I think you could make a case. I mean, we, maybe, maybe, and you're welcome to debate this. We could talk about great commandment, and great commission. We can look at all these things that are like fundamental. But I, I really think that you can make a very strong case that this single phrase is the centerpiece of the Christian ethic. What is the essence of the Christian life? It is that we bless and we do not ki- curse. That when we are reviled, we do not revile in return. Which is really something to say. If, if it's true that that's the central Christian ethic, then it makes me wonder, like, are we Christians? <laughs> right? Because this is extraordinarily hard and incredibly unnatural. And so the very, the very, very normal thing is we, when sued, we countersue. Right, when punched, we we punch back. When cursed, we we yell back. It's when somebody argues with us on Facebook, we argue right back. I mean, just whatever the thing is, that there's just this natural give and take. Boom, boom, boom. But the central Christian ethic is that Jesus is like, no, no, don't do that. Just don't do that. Holy moly, that's so incredibly hard. And for us, here's the thing, you guys, it's really, really hard to do at the most simplistic of levels. If you think about our lives, we're, we're like, we're dealing with like the most truly, genuinely, the most insignificant of attacks. The most minor of insults. The, 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 just the smallest bits of suffering. And it's, generally speaking, it's more than we can bear. But the Christian ethic is born out of Jesus getting cru- literally crucified, right? This whole, Peter is not just basing this on Jesus' words, his talk is cheap, but in Jesus' actions to just drink the animosity of the crowds. I want to show you a clip uh, from a movie that uh, I think is an absolutely exceptional film. Um, it is called To End All Wars. It, who, raise your hand if you've seen the movie To End All Wars. Just almost very, very few, just a couple of you. All right, so To End All Wars, is, um, it's not a Christian film in as much as, Kirk Cameron isn't in it, okay? <laughs> so it doesn't, it doesn't fit into, this, into the genre of like, you know, cheesy Christian propaganda. But it is a Christian film through and through. Um, one of the main stars is Kiefer Sutherland. It's got a pretty strong, pretty strong cast. And it is a, I believe it's a true story. I'm almost paused. Is it, am I right? It's a true story. So it's, it's like American and British soldiers that were interred in a Japanese prison camp. In World War II and in the midst of the camp um, some of the men are are Christians and some of the men are not and as you watch the film I think I think most of us most of us Christians would would most most readily um, identify with and sympathize with the non-Christians because in the film these, these men are subjected to astonishing levels of brutality and cruelty and everything in you. I mean, it stars Kiefer Sutherland, for crying out loud, okay? Like, if you're, if you're a 24 fan, the glory of 24 is that Jack kills everybody that needs to die, right? And it is like, it's just like injecting pure happiness into your veins. It's like, that guy needed to die, and that guy needed to die, and that guy right? And so this film stars Kiefer who, in a very, very different role and there there emerges within the camp these two subcamps of there are these christians that believe this craziness that we are to bless those who persecute us that when we are cursed we bless when we're persecuted we endure it that we don't pay back wrong for wrong and then you've got all these non-christians in the camp that are like are you out of your mind do you are you seeing this and as you watch as i watch the film at least i'm like Oh no, like my heart is drawn over to these guys cuz I just want I want the bad guys to get it in the teeth. And there's I'm going to watch I'll, I'll show you one clip And in the clip we'll see. And this is by no means the emotional high point or low point I suppose of the film. It's really worth seeing. To End All Wars. Well, worth go I'm sure it's on Amazon. You can go rent it. Um it is incredibly powerful. This, this in this scene um the the American and British soldiers have been you know, subjected to all kinds of trauma, and a group of, it's a little, we're gonna, we're gonna, we'll jump into the clip, so it's a little bit confusing, but a group essentially of Japanese um, deserters are brought into the camp. And from the, from the leaders from the Japanese leadership's perspective, these Japanese deserters are just the scum of the scum, the worst of the worst. So they're hated. But from the perspective of the Americans and the, and the British, they're also their enemy who prior to deserting were subjecting them to unimaginable cruelty right so they have no they have no hope they, nobody loves nobody likes these guys okay and so with that um in fact let's see can somebody that knows how to turn the lights down turn them down so we can see this are you can you you've got it up there scott you switch up there what an amazing church okay so scott give it to us <laughs> It's an incredibly powerful film, and I really strongly, if, if you, well no, forget the if, like go ahead and watch it. <laughs> it's, um, it explores this precise theme at a level of intensity that I don't think I've ever seen depicted um, with so much. We, we think about loving and cursing our enemies because they voted differently than us. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> These are these these this group of believers, and, it's, and it's, it is explicitly Christian. Like when you're, it is the it is the gospel that is motivating these men. And throughout the camp, you you can see it. You can read it on the faces of these Japanese soldiers. Is that said, they don't have a category for this? What are we? What are they? What are we to do with this sort of non-retaliatory, turn the other cheek? Go the extra mile to the absolute extreme love. What does that even, what does that look like? And there are Americans and British who hate it because they're so bloodthirsty for revenge. And the Japanese who value honor are so ultimately shamed by their inferiority in the presence of such love. Kelly and I just read an article this week, and I think it was Hans Urs von Balthasar, but it's somebody in this article. The article was by Jamie Smith, and he quotes somebody who said, Love alone is credible. <laughs> Meaning, the, the primary apologetic for the gospel, the primary persuasive power of the gospel is not words, which as a teacher, I wish it were words, but it, it's, it's not, it's this. It's love lived out at radical, costly, nonsensical ways is what actually transforms the world, um, but it's costly. And you'd love this film to have some magnificent, you know? It's like, and then all the Japanese people became Christians and they led the camp in happy glory. That's <laughs> uh, not how the story goes, right? Not, not by a long shot. The misery, misery continues. And yet, in the in the in the great big arc of the world the things are ultimately moving toward, this is how it works. And so, I really encourage you to end all wars, it would be, a f- I wish we had the time just to, it would, it would be, this would be a better class, sincerely, if we were just simply watching that film. But we're not going to do that right now. But you could go home and watch it and get it all, all at once. Yeah, Lily.
2: I was just wondering, I think that um, since we are so removed from real suffering, that perhaps that's one of the reasons why this is difficult to grasp. But I think also as Christians, you know, we speak a lot, though not enough about humility. Would you say that blessing those
0: who curse us, blessing our enemies and serving them is, is more just um, an essential piece of the humility that God calls us to? Uh, is, it, is blessing is a, a piece of humility? I, I might say, um, okay, the, re, I, the relationship I would say is that humility is the ground and the root of all virtues. And in so doing, I'm just ripping off Andrew Murray, so apologies to him. So every virtue literally every virtue grows out of the root of humility and so absent humility absent the belief that other people besides myself have value um, we, we would you would never why would you show mercy to some some scum that is beneath you. The only way that you can do that is if you recognize that you are not some high and exalted and great one, but we are all at this at this base level. So I think humility is the grant. Absent that, you you'll never you would never do this. But you need to in the same way that Peter talks about add to add to this virtue, this virtue, add to this virtue, this virtue. I don't think humility alone will do that. You you must add to that baseline of humility. Um, well, you tell me what would you need to believe. In order to go from, let's, let's just grant humility, which is probably too much to grant. But let's grant that. What does it take to end up to live this life? What else would, you, what else would be required in your life?
2: Um, apathy.
0: Who said this? Anyway, you said Empathy. Is that yeah? So the ability—can I look at another person? Can I see the world from their perspective to recognize that they're fighting for their country, they're under this thing, whatever, whatever's going on, and to actually begin to experience somebody else's pain? Very good. Absolutely. What else do you need to live this kind of life? The whole spirit. Okay, so then that's kind of a cheat, right? Because the Holy Spirit is in you. And along with that comes everything. The fruit of the Spirit is. You just, you just bundled in. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. I mean, the, whole, the whole set, if God is actually alive and directing you, for sure. Fetz?
2: Uh, Reminding yourself that you yourself received mercy and, and grace.
0: Absolutely. So my understanding that I have been given things that I did not deserve, if I don't have that, then how, why would I? Choose to give other people things that they deserve. If I think that I built this life. My hands and my power have created this. That's going to make me imperious towards others, for sure. Brad, I think you have a long view of justice.
2: Justice is the
0: Lord's. Yes, it's eternal. And 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 woven into that, Brad, is is not is that this, at the at the end of the long view is that He really will avenge. I would say that the the great. Um, we tend to be embarrassed by the imprecatory psalms, which are the psalms that say that God will bring justice against his enemies. We think, oh, we're not supposed to like that. And I would say we absolutely must have that. Because if, if, you, if you believe that, this, that the, the commander of this prison camp is going to get away with everything, then you will have to take matters into your own hands. You, you will. But if you believe that in the final analysis no one gets away with anything, that all sin will either be it, the, the consequence of it will be absorbed by the perpetrator or absorbed by Jesus, 100%, every, the, the, the balance sheets will be made even, right? It will either be absorbed by Christ or suffered in unimaginable agony by the perpetrators. of. It. If you believe that, well, then that enables you to stay your hand. But if you don't believe that, it's like, I'm going to even the balance sheet myself. It's absolutely crucial that you believe in the justice of God if you are to be a merciful person, for sure. Herrick, and they'll come to Bob. Giving up your pride, and uh, you know, I think pride is a huge thing in our lives. <coughs> and, uh, we, like you were just saying, we want to handle everything. Yeah. We, want to, we want the glory for everything too. You know, we. I did great at this. I did that. You know, it's. Tells you over and over, you know, if you do this to be seen or to be whatever, then you know you're a you know, reward because your father's not going to reward you. If you do it in secret, he's going to reward you. And of course, and that's exactly right, Herrick. And of course, pride is the is the companion or the opposite to humility. So when we talk about humility as being the root, this is it's 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 not very controversial, I don't think, to say that pride is the chief of all sins. I think we've probably heard that language more often, but the converse of that is, of course, true, that humility is the root of all virtue. We should recognize that these, these things are a pair. Bob? This morning's sermon, I think, ben and Greg talked about it, to, to deny your take up your cross, follow yep. him, living out the gospel, having the gospel in mind. Yes, and that denial, that's again, that's, another, that's like make a, a first-generation fruit of humility is that we could do this. Okay, Jennifer, and then we're going to wrap this thing up. Yep. The
2: thing that struck me so much it takes courage,
0: Oh my gosh, and you want to talk about courage? Like it, within that film, uh, well, okay. So the, you, I mean, the, the courage is the is the absolute theme of the, of all of these things. Lewis says that courage is not one of the virtues, but is every virtue at its testing point. Does that make sense? So it's easy to be kind until it's costly right it's easy to well relatively easy to be anything you need to be until the until the price goes high and what you see in in this film is the the courage that is that is displayed in these men there is i'll just say this I won't I won't give too much away but there is a scene where one man is going to be killed one one American or British you know one of the allies is going to be killed um, and you may have, you may have seen stories like this where um there's a number of different stories. Maximilian Colby. Do you guys know Maximilian Colby, Famous Catholic priest. He was in a prison camp of World War II. And other men were going to be killed um, in the camp. I think, I, think, I think the rule, somebody had escaped. And the rule was if somebody escapes, then like ten men die. So that if you make it out, at least you know that you killed ten people behind. And so one man was going to be killed for the sin of another. And Maximilian Colby steps forward and says, to, let me take his place. And he, and, and he does. That happens... In this film, but in a um, with a very barbaric twist. I'll just say that. Um, but the courage that is on display over and over again, and and it, we tend to think it's the courage to punch back, right? It is the courage of Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? It's the courage to get in there and to fight. But what this movie displays is that there it takes <laughs> orders of magnitude more courage to. Take the punch, than to than to give the punch, and so yeah, absolutely. So here's here's, so here's your assignment, okay, Ellen. You get you get the final word.
2: Um, I think that it takes um, compassion and forgiveness to to
1: for somebody that's hurt you. Enormously. They they are need. I can't just walk away. That's right. So you have to let like you said, you have to let the pride down.
0: Learn to forgive. And, and listen to this list. And you just almost completed the list. Remember our first five adjectives? Harmonious, sympathetic, brother-lovish, compassionate, humble. These things f- play out in this, in, in this way. So here's what I want you to do. Two, two assignments. Number one, watch the film to end all wars. It's, 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 it's incredibly powerful. Watch the film. But then number two, it, you, watch in your life this week. Where do you have the opportunity to turn the other cheek? To not choose to redominate, to bless and not curse, just to let it happen. I guarantee you it will be less intense than this, but it might not be any less difficult for you at this moment. It's really, really hard. But this is a muscle worth developing. Can I become the sort of a person who is able to take the hit? I'm telling you, it is the centerpiece of Christian ethics. And I, and I think we're not nearly as well practiced at it as we ought to be. Okay? That's all. Oh, 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 no, 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 no that's not all. Last thing. Next week, we're going to have class. I'll be here. But we're, we're going to skip out of Second Peter, or 1 Peter. Um, the reason is, I'm going to do a special... We're been, I'm inviting the parents of all of our elementary and high school kids to join us. So some of you, that's already you, so just come. But we're going to do a special session on transgenderism among adolescents. Um, and I'll explain more about why exactly we're going to do that. But it'll be, we're not going to do, Peter, transgenderism among adolescents. I hope that we'll have a more crowded room. Um, well, not much. more. We don't have that many more seats. Um, but this will be a, kind of a special one-week time because there's just a lot of stuff going on um, in the broader culture, in, in our church, um, in the world. And we wanna, we wanna, I wanted to create an, an uh, arena to help some parents think about that. So um, come, but it will be just a little bit different next week. Okay? Thanks. <laughs>